Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. Merry Christmas. You guys doing well? Good. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open them up to Genesis 3? We're going to be hanging out in Genesis 3 to start, and then we're going to end up in John 21. So you need a Bible. If you don't have one, we have people coming down the aisles uh, right now who um, would love to get a Bible to you. Just raise your hand, and we will get that to you. In fact, um, one of our ushers is probably the most bravest man here. He's wearing shorts uh, this morning, so he'd love to give you a Bible, um, and it probably would be especially powerful from him. Um, Hope you guys all had a good Thanksgiving. Um, I had a great Thanksgiving um, with my family. One funny story uh, from my Thanksgiving. So we got up to my dad's house on Wednesday afternoon. And uh, my dad has some property uh, where he lives. And uh, my dad was getting ready to go out hunting that night. And uh, he goes, hey, Cal, do you want to have like some father-son bonding? And do you want to go hunting with me? And I'm not much of a hunter. In fact, I've never shot uh, a deer before in my life. So I was like, yeah, I will go hunting with you. But listen, I'm not, I, I don't need to get like an eight or 10 point buck. Like I just want, I'll shoot a doe. Like I just want to find a deer. I want to shoot a deer. I think that would be really fun. So my dad's like, oh, that'll be perfect. I've been going out at night and I've been picky, but like every night I've been seeing like 18 to like 40 dough and, and you're going to get one for sure. It's going to be great. So we get all the hunting gear on. My dad gets my gun sighted in and, and we're literally driving out to his blind and in, in the, his yard, there's a beautiful big doe just standing about 20 yards from us. And I'm like, well, I'll, I'll shoot that one. <laughs> like, I don't care. And my dad's like, no, 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 we got to get to the blind. I want you to see the field. I want you to see where I hunt. We're going we're gonna to see a, a, a ton of these. So we drive past the deer that's standing right there. And uh, we get to our blind. And the blind is about the size of like this pulpit. And we're huddled in together uh, looking for a deer. And for three hours, we did not see a squirrel. <laughs> and uh, I'm sitting in the blind thinking to myself like, oh, I remember why I don't hunt. It's this exact reason. It's because it's awful. So uh, I am again announcing my retirement from hunting, um, at least until next year. And uh, I hope that any of you uh, who are out there had a better um, experience than I did. But we are past hunting season and we are in the month of December now. And just like we do many years at this church, what we're doing um, together is doing an Advent series. And Advent, it's the idea of preparing our hearts to rightly celebrate Christmas. We don't want to miss the spiritual significance of the holidays. It would be a shame if we miss Christ in the holiday that's named after him. Amen? So, so we want to spend a few weeks preparing our hearts for what the birth of Jesus represents. That's why when you come in here, we have a different worship sets. That's why there are trees in the foyer, why we had so many great volunteers come in and serve to make this building look beautiful. And, and church, there's always a real danger for us when it comes to Christmas, right? I, I can feel it. There's this temptation when Christmas time rolls around just to make the whole holiday really, really cheesy, right? It's easy when we think of Christmas just to get into our feelings and we make it all about, man, the uh, hot chocolate and the Christmas trees and the snowflakes and the time with family. And we make it about all of the things that are good, but are not the main thing. I primarily blame the Hallmark Channel for this. I think it's their fault, but, but you can feel this. Like we get in our feelings and here's why that's a danger. Because these Advent words, we're going to talk about hope today. And hope is way too important to trivialize. Like I would argue if you don't have hope, you don't have anything. 
Life gets very, very dark very, very quickly. And we as Christians, our hope is tied to this baby born in a manger. Maybe if I could ask you this question, if a neighbor were to pull you aside and ask you, what does it mean to hope in Christ? Could you give them an answer that was coherent and made sense and was compelling? Like if someone asked you, what does it mean that you hope in Christ? Could you give them an answer that was real and impactful? Or is it one of those pithy phrases Christians have that we say, but we don't really understand or it doesn't really impact us in a practical way? So here's what I'm going to ask these next three weeks leading up to Christmas and then on Christmas Eve, let's lean in because there's great power in these words. So here's the big idea this morning. It's this. It's that our hope is anchored to the truth that God is always moving towards us. Our hope is all about God's trajectory. We as Christians have hope in the fact that God is, has, and will always move towards us relationally. That this is who God is. And church, I would argue that we as people, we're not like that. We're different than God in this way. We tend to move towards the things that are comfortable to us. We tend to move towards what is easy and the things that are difficult and create awkwardness or discomfort for us, we tend to move away from, right? Let me explain this to you. Um, I am what people refer to as a sympathy puker. Did you know what I'm talking about? Here's what that means. That means if I see someone throw up, hear someone throw up, or definitely smell someone throw up, there's something in my body that happens that's like, oh, it's time for you to throw up too. It just happens. I can't control it. I can't stop it. So here's what happens. When someone around me throws up, I run away. Like, I just know I've got to get out of there or I'm going to be part of the problem. This severely limits me as a husband and as a father in many ways. Right, like those cute stories where your wife is throwing up and the husband's holding her hair over the toilet, not in our marriage, right? Like I will make things worse if I'm there when like spit up as a baby makes me nervous. But when it's like the full guttural throw up, like our kids would wake up, they'd throw up and I'd be like, Mayor, I am worthless to you right now. Like I am out. I run away. Like even talking about it makes me feel weird right now. I'm starting to sweat a little bit. Um, I run away from what is uncomfortable. But we do this relationally too, don't we? Um, the rebellious child, guess what he sent, tends to do? He tends to try to get away from mom and dad, right? He doesn't want the conflict and the disappointment and the disagreement about the choices that he or she is making, so they tend to go away and, and remove themselves from their parents, right? Conflict with others. When there's a fight at work or, or, or a disagreement amongst neighbors, what do you do? You just try to avoid each other. Right? Like, like, like if it's uncomfortable, we just remove ourselves from that. Like so often we choose not to have difficult conversations that we know we probably need to have because the conflict makes us uncomfortable. We move to what's easy, right? Even as a society, we view heroes as the ones who run towards danger and towards conflict while everyone else is running away. But church, look at me. God is not wired like us. In fact, Scripture shows us that in the most difficult moments, the moments where it would make the least sense for God to draw near, that's when he does. When it would be easiest for God to abandon us, he actually moves towards us, and this has real and massive implications for us today. So here's what I want to do this morning. I just want to pull on this single thread 
that God is always moving towards us. And I'm going to do that by looking at two of the most massive failures in world history recorded in the Bible and see how God responds to people in their worst moment. So the first we're going to look at is in Genesis 3. This is how God responds to Adam and Eve after they sin, right? You know the story. God creates the world, and it's perfect. And God places Adam and Eve in the garden and says, I want relationship with you. I want to know you. I want to love you. And he goes, you can eat of any tree of the garden, just not one. I'm going to give you one law. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that goes great for about 20 minutes. And then Adam and Eve decide, I don't want to follow God. I don't want to live under his rule and authority. We want to be like God. We want to have autonomy from God. They're deceived by Satan, the serpent. They eat of the fruit and creation is broken. Everything God designed is broken in that moment. And where I want to pick up the story is right after that in verse 8. Look what it says. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Okay, here's the first thing we see in Genesis 3. What does God do in the midst of Adam and Eve's failure? God moves towards them. Like, isn't that amazing that God still comes down to earth walks through the garden and calls out to Adam and Eve and is like, hey, where are you guys? Like, I think this is one of the most underappreciated parts of the whole story, that in the moment when Adam and Eve reject God and say, God, we want life without you, God doesn't say, fine, then I'm leaving. He actually moves towards them, calls them, moves towards them and says, where are you? He wasn't unaware of what happened. Nobody felt the effect of sin more deeply than God. And yet in verse 8, here he is continuing to pursue them in relationship. He didn't have to, but he did. See what Adam and Eve are doing? They're acting like you and I would, right? They're hiding. They're like, we screwed up. We have broken creation. We've broken relationship with you. They are scared, and they're hiding, and they're moving away from what is difficult into what is easy, which is isolation. And yet God moves towards them. Look at verse 10. And this is Adam speaking now. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? You have eaten of, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Right, so you know how the story goes. Adam blames Eve. It's like this woman you gave me, it's her fault. Eve blames the serpent. It's like, no, the serpent lied to me. They're trying to deflect the blame, but that they know that things are bad. All right, but do me a favor. Jump down to verse 21. Look how God responds to them says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. So not only does God move toward them, but he meets their needs. But like what I love about this story is not only have Adam and Eve sinned and there's broken relationship between God and man, Adam and Eve have a very pressing physical need. They're now aware that they're naked and they're ashamed of that and they're embarrassed and they're horrified. Right, like I have this reoccurring dream that I am back in high school and it's finals week. Do any of you guys have this dream? And you realize you have to take an exam for a math class that not only you have not studied for, but you've skipped all semester. 
and, and I'm like, I know I'm going to fail this exam. My only hope is, is that my math book is in my locker, and if I can study for 10 minutes before the exam, maybe I cannot look like an idiot. So in my dream, I'm at my locker trying to get my math book, but I can't remember the combination to my locker. And then I look down and realize I'm not wearing any pants. That's how the dream usually ends for me. And I wake up and I'm like, thank you, Lord, that I'm not still in high school, right? That's a nightmare I have probably once a month. Like, this is happening to Adam and Eve in real life. Did you know that? Like, not only have they sinned and broken creation, like, they're naked in front of God. And even though it's their fault, and even though they rebelled against God, God's like, I love these people. And I don't want them to be ashamed and horrified and embarrassed, so I'm going to care for a pressing physical need that they have. He makes them close. Like in that act, I think we see so much of God's heart towards us that even in our failure, he's like, I want to care for them and provide what they need. When abandonment was appropriate, God moves towards Adam and Eve. Here's the third thing we see is that God tells them the truth. Look at verse 16. God's going to tell a hard truth to Adam and Eve. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All right, what does God do? He tells them the truth. He says, there's consequences for your actions. And he says to Eve, um, childbearing is going to be painful for you, and you're going to have relational conflict with your husband. And to Adam, he says, um, you just entered, allowed death to enter into this world. You will return to dust because of sin, for the wages of sin is death, and work is going to be cursed and difficult. He gives them the consequences of their sin. One of the sayings we have at Harvest is that when we choose sin, we are choosing suffering. God never minimizes our sin. He doesn't ignore it, but he tells us the truth. In church, you need to hear me. Telling people the truth is an act of love. Being honest is loving. We as Christians, we create this crazy false dichotomy where it's like we either have to choose to be loving or be truthful as if they're enemies when they're not. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is tell someone what you're doing dishonors the Lord and it is leading you into danger and what you are seeking, you are not going to find down that path. In fact, so often I think we shy away from telling people the truth, not because we love others, but because we love ourselves and would rather be comfortable and not have conflict, even though the person that we know has an issue, has an issue. Like how often during the holiday seasons does the family get together and talk about how concerned they are for the one family member that's not around, but no one talks to that family member because it might create conflict. God telling Adam and Eve the truth is moving towards them in love. All right, but look at verse 15. God doesn't end there. He says this. He's talking to Satan now. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right, he promises restoration. 
Like, I love this. Before he even lays out the consequences of sin, he talks to Satan first and he says, Satan, you're not going to win. Sin will not have the final say, but there is an offspring coming from this woman who will crush your head and defeat sin and death once and for all. In the moment of Adam and Eve's failure, God promises to restore. This is astounding that God would move towards them in this moment. All right, so do me a favor. Turn in your Bibles to John 21. I want to keep pulling on this thread and show you that it's not just God the Father whose heart was like this. It's also the same heart shared by his son, Jesus. All right, we're going to see Jesus, after he is risen from the dead, reunite with Peter. And this is the first time he's seen Peter since he was arrested. And if you guys remember, the night that Jesus was arrested, did Peter have a good night or or a bad night? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Right, it was thumbs down. He had a really bad night. The night started by him telling Jesus, I'm not gonna let you get arrested. I'm not gonna let that happen to you. When Jesus was arrested, he sliced off the ear of, of a soldier that Jesus then healed so that Peter wouldn't be arrested and killed. I don't know what Peter's plan was. He's like, maybe if I slice off all the ears, they won't hear us as they run away. It wasn't a good plan. But then the night ends with him denying that he even knows Jesus. Three times, Peter said, I want nothing to do with him. This was Jesus' best friend on earth. In the moment Jesus needed him the most, Peter runs away and denies him. That's where the story picks up. Look at verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, talking to the other disciples, he said, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. All right, so you see what Peter's doing? He's acting like us. He's going back to what he knows, to what's comfortable. He's just failed Jesus, and he's like, well, I'm a fisherman. It's what I know. I'm going to go back and go back to what is easy for me. And apparently he is as good as fishing as I am as hunting because he's out there all night and catches nothing. Look at verse 4. It says this, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And then that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging a net full of fish. So they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. All right, so what happens in this story? Well, here's the first thing we see. We see that Jesus moves towards Peter. Like, I love this. Peter is just going back to his life before Christ. And yet it's Jesus who's on the shore walking towards Peter, calling out to Peter, being like, hey, how's fishing going? And they're like, it's not going great. And Jesus goes, well, try casting your net on the other side. And if you know the Gospels, this isn't the first time Jesus had done this with the disciples, where the disciples had been out fishing, not catching anything. And Jesus, to show that he's God and to show that he is in control of nature, would say, well, cast to the other side. And their nets would be bursting full with fish. And he does it again. And here's what I can promise you. Jesus wasn't concerned about how many fish they needed to catch. This was Jesus saying, hey, I'm here. It's me, I'm back, and I love you, come to shore. All right, look at verse nine. And it says, when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire with fish laid out on it and bread. 
So what does Jesus do next? He meets Peter's needs. Do you see a theme picking up here? Right, right. Before Jesus even speaks to Peter, think about this. Peter denies knowing Jesus. Before Jesus even addresses it, he makes him breakfast. He serves him. He's like, Peter, you've been out all night fishing. I know you're going to be hungry, and I love you. And as he walks onto the shore, Jesus already has a great breakfast laid out for them. I just think it's amazing how kind and serving Jesus is towards Peter, who doesn't deserve it. All right, Jesus then tells him the truth. Look at verse 15. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, I know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lamps. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Why does Jesus ask Peter the same question three times? Do you love me? Because he's acknowledging the reality that the last thing Peter had done was deny Jesus three times. He's not minimizing it. He's not pretending like it didn't happen. But Jesus is saying, Peter, I know that there's a break in relationship between you and me, and I'm addressing it head on. He's telling him the truth. But then what does he do? He he promises restoration. He says, feed my lambs. He says, feed my sheep. He is putting Peter back in a position of authority over a movement that would change the world called the church. He's saying this moment of failure does not define you. It is not the end of your story, but you are my disciple, you're one of my best friends, and you are going to be used by me in a way that is going to change the world. Peter's life is not marked by this failure, it's marked by the fact that Jesus loved him, pursued him, and restored him. Because this is the heart of God towards us. All right, and some of you are thinking, wow, Cal, those are cool stories, but what does this have to do with Christmas? How is this a Christmas message? Well, think about it, church. What is the Christmas story? What is God doing when he sends us a baby in a manger? Guess what he's doing? He's moving towards us, right? Like there is no greater move of God towards us than God himself becoming man. That the one who breathed existence into reality that the everlasting light of the universe entered in the still of a dark night. God became man for us, moving towards us. There is no greater movement in the history of the universe, right? That God is meeting our needs. Church, the thing you need most this Christmas is to be in right relationship with God. We were created to know and worship God. And if we pursue anything else, if we worship anything else, if we live life without the knowledge and worship of God, we're living outside of our created purpose. It's why we exist to give him glory. Jesus is the one who made that relationship right for us. He provides us our greatest need that he would be the sacrifice for our sin so that we can be in the presence of God again. Jesus is telling us, or God is telling us the truth, right? The story of Christmas is not just about the baby Jesus, but it's why this baby had to come and this baby came to die. All right, throw up the next slide. 
Um, so this was really fun, something that happened at Thanksgiving. That's my son, Bo, the older one. He's nine, and he got to meet his newest nephew, Jack, for the first time. Jack is just a couple weeks old, and uh, Bo was like, can I hold baby Jack? And he's never really done that before. He's never really been all that interested, to be honest. So Mary did the thing where she sits him down and then puts a pillow under his arm and then places the baby there so he's doing it right. And Bo starts holding Jack, and he looks at him, and then he goes, Mom and Dad, isn't new life just precious? And I'm like, you're such a weird kid. Like, who says that, right? Like, what a weird thing to say in that moment. But that's bow for you. And, and, and here's the point. When we see a newborn baby, the first thing that pops into our mind isn't how that baby's going to die, right? We think of new. We think of life. We think of beginnings. But here's the amazing thing about the Christmas story. Even in the birth of a new life, there is death around the edges because that baby had a purpose and that purpose was to come and die for our sin. Think about the wise men. Do you remember the gifts the wise men gave Jesus? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Did you know that myrrh was used to wrap up the body of Jesus after he was crucified? We know this from John 19. It says that Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. The wise men showing up with myrrh what would be the equivalent of showing up in the hospital to, to meet a newborn baby and bringing a casket as a gift, right? Super creepy and weird, right? You would never do that. But, but see, God is telling us the truth that this baby had to come because we are broken. Because we are covered in sin and shame and our hope rests not in ourselves or a better version of ourselves, but our hope rests in the one who would heal the world. And that is baby that was born in a manger, it's Jesus and then here's the fourth thing. God is providing restoration. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 3.15 that he lived a life completely devoted to God, that he died a death that is sacrificial, undeserving on our behalf, and his perfection covers our sin, that he has crushed the head of Satan, that he is ruling and reigning in heaven, and one day he is returning and will restore this broken creation. It is our hope. It's why Paul says that when we grieve those that we lose who are in Christ, we do not grieve as those without hope. Because Jesus is reigning and he's alive and he is always moving towards us. All right, church, so here's the big idea. Again, our hope is anchored to the truth that God is always moving towards us. All right, so here's what I mean very, very practically. Pay attention with me. Here's what that means. The reason we can have hope is that it doesn't matter how you come in here today. Right, like I know in a room this size with this many people, some of you walk into this room and you're like, man, I have been very, very far away from God. And my heart's been hard, and I've been doing my own thing. And if God can really hear the things that I've thought about him and done and said about him, would God really want me? Here's the answer. Yes, he absolutely does. There is no failure you have committed that's greater than Adam and Eve's or Peter's, and God doesn't stop moving towards them for a second. He loves you. He wants to be in right relationship towards you. The fact that you're here is God moving towards you saying, it's okay, I love you. Right? Some of you are thinking, man, um, my life is just messy. 
My finances are a mess. My family relationships are a mess. I don't know how to navigate Christmas without stepping on the family landmines because my family is a mess. Everything I see around me is brokenness. Here's what I'll tell you. God's not scared of your mess. That God knows what it's like to live in the mess. He entered our world. He knows brokenness and he is moving towards you. Bring that mess to him. Trust him to help you sort out the difficult things that you can't sort out on your own. Give, let him give you the strength that you need. Or some of you are like, man, I'm really, really lonely. Right, the holiday season, it's, it, it's weird because there's so much time with family, but it's also the time practically you can feel the most alone. Right, and there's some of us that enter the holiday seasons where it's like, man, I don't have a family to, to, to be with, or I'm mourning the loss of a father or a friend or a spouse, and it's bringing up just how difficult this past year was. Well, here's what you can know. God is moving towards you, and he's near you. The Bible says that he is near the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Listen, here's our hope, church. You're never alone if you are in Christ. What an awesome gift that is to us. It's why Paul says, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing, because he never stops moving towards us. All right, so here's what I wanna do as we close. I wanna close by kind of um, getting our hearts prepared for Christmas by asking an Advent question. And this question is geared towards you kind of looking at your own life and saying, am I living in the hope of Jesus Christ? So here's the Advent question. It's this. Um, what is the trajectory of your life? If we as Christians assert that God is always moving towards us, and I hope you see that clearly through our time together in his word, um, what's your trajectory towards God and others? Right, so think about the stories of Adam and Eve and Peter because they're very, very similar in many ways, but there's one massive difference, right? When Adam hears God walking through the garden, what does he do? He runs to the trees and he hides. He allows shame to define him and win the day. What does Peter do? When Peter sees Jesus walking on the beach, he goes, he can't even wait for the boat to get to shore. He jumps in and swims to Jesus and says, I know Jesus is the thing that can heal me. I've got to be in right relationship with him. He's the most important. So, so in the sin and failure that is very, very similar, they respond in two opposite ways. Which are you before the Lord today? See, I, I'm so worried that we get in this cycle where we allow our sin and our failure and shame to cause us to hide away from God, which only produces more shame and failure and sin. When it's like, no, no, God is walking towards you and he's moving towards you. And it's like, I'm ready to restore and love and forgive. Jesus has already paid your debt and covered your sin. Move towards me. Listen, are you moving towards God right now? Are you moving towards him in prayer? Are you moving towards him in worship, in thankfulness, in love? Is your walk with the Lord vibrant? Are you moving towards him as he's moving towards you? Or are you like Adam hiding? And if you're like Adam hiding, it's okay. But it's time to take that step out. The Lord's calling to you saying, hey, come to me. And then here's the next question. Are you moving towards others? What's the trajectory of you towards others? As I was writing this message this week, James 1.27 just stayed in my mind. I want to share it with you. It says this, James, the brother of Jesus, says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And it made me think like, why does James say for the people who really get what it means to know God, that they would move towards widows and orphans? Like, what is the connection there? Well, here's the connection, church. Look at me. If you are a widow or a widower, you've lost the closest person in your life. You've lost a spouse. There's a significant relational gap there, right? Well, like I've said before on the stage, man, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have Mary. Like, I know that God would provide and he'd be faithful, but man, would there be a deficit in my life. Right? If you're an orphan, you don't have parents, and, and there's a significant relational gap. And here's what God's saying. As followers of God, we know that God is always moving towards us, and because we love him and are grateful, we should be looking at people in our lives who have significant relational gaps and saying, I want to show them the love of God by moving towards them. I want to exemplify God's love by understanding that there are people who are entering this holiday season with real brokenness and pain. Are we moving towards them? Are we reaching out? Are we saying, you're not alone and I love you and how can I care for you? And church, here's what I'll say, this is the truth. Anytime you move towards someone else, you're setting yourself up to be hurt. You're setting yourself up for things to get messy. The easy thing to do is to isolate and to be consumed with ourselves and to have our mind wrapped around our schedule and our lives. But here's what I will argue. Man, I'm thankful that God wasn't that way with us, right? That when we were messy in our failure, in our sin, God moves towards us. And that's the story of Christmas. And this needs to be a story that pierces and transforms our hearts, amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I'm thankful for your word. God, I'm thankful for the hope of the gospel that you move towards us even in our shame and ugliness. And God, all of us carry uh, that in our hearts. And yet you know us and you love us and you move towards us. Help us to rejoice in that. Help us to love you even more for that. Help us to be a light for those in our communities and spheres of influence who have relational gaps that, that need to be filled. May we show your love to others. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.